Good morning. It's fair to say that each of us in these past number of months have become familiar with headlines that talk about the economic collapse of a number of nations around the globe. Bankruptcy and bailout have become familiar terms. Watch the evening news on almost any given night and you'll hear about some major retail outlet that's closing its doors. You hear phrases like chapter 11 bankruptcy declared by this retailer, these restaurant chains closing. You turn on your television and scan the headlines of almost any major North American media outlet and you'll know what I'm talking about. A wave of economic collapse has crossed the globe. The COVID-19 global pandemic has turned on its head the economic survival of countless employers and businesses. From Market Watch to CBC to CBS, details of the carnage are everywhere. You can't escape those phrases, bankruptcy, bailout. So today we're going to talk about that from a little bit of a different perspective. We're going to observe from the pages of Scripture God's thoughts on themes such as bankruptcy and bailout from an eternal angle. Today we're going to be looking at an encounter Jesus had with someone who was rich, and he's going to confront that young man with a possibility of bankruptcy and the possibility of maybe even a bailout. And so the circumstances in which the main character of this account finds himself in those ways are not dissimilar to the circumstances each of us may be surrounded with as we watch the evening news. Maybe some of you have experienced it personally in your employment. You've lost your job because of the pandemic. Maybe family finances are tight. Churches, including our own, have felt the effects financially of the pandemic. Charities are struggling. And it's caused us all to have to face our thoughts and our experiences and our assessments around wealth and money. And so if you would turn with me today to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read together from verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Teacher, he declared, I have kept them all. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So as we begin this message, we're going to be obviously talking about wealth and money. The issue of finances will come up. And I know some of you might be listening today and say, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm kind of going to skate out of this one and duck out and dip out because I'm not really rich. You know, Jesus must have had people like Bill Gates in mind or maybe that really rich guy who lives five or six blocks away. Maybe he has those tech millionaires in Silicon Valley in mind or maybe some people in fancy neighborhoods who live in mansions, but it certainly isn't me. So I can kind of listen to this one and uh, nod sweetly. Well, if that's how we're thinking, I want to get a few things out of the way right off the hop. If you're watching this message anywhere in Canada or in a Western country, I have some news for you. You are rich. Every single one of you watching this message today is a wealthy person. The statistics on your screen prove my point. If you're living in a G7 country, of which Canada is one, we represent 10% of the world's population. But we have collectively 40% of the world's wealth. Think about that. Seven countries on Earth, out of over 150, together have almost half of the world's wealth. Put another way, when you look at the gross domestic product and you distribute it per capita, in other words, the wealth that each person, every woman, man, and child represents in a G7 country, it's 43,000, which is three times the global average. So in other words, at minimum, you're three times wealthier on average if you're living in Canada than anybody else in the world. So I rest my case, you're rich. You have a lot of money. You have possessions. You have a home. The odds are you have access to a vehicle, maybe own one or two of them. You have a bank account. You don't have to worry that you're going to starve to death tomorrow morning. So Jesus then settles his words into the heart of this young man that he meets. He talked much about money. 16 of the 38 parables that he shares in the four Gospels are concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses, in fact, 10, one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, or one-sixth of the entire New Testament, deal with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. It's one of the most dominant themes of the entire New Testament. So rest assured, God has a lot to say about money, about how we view it, how we use it, and the place it takes in our heart and our lives. So let's move right into the text this morning. This encounter that Jesus has with this rich young man begins, as you noticed earlier, with a question. And I'm going to call it this morning the big question. What's the crowning question of this encounter? It's told to us in Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. Here's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of the hour, friends. 
What must we do to inherit eternal life? You see this chart that I've shown you, it kind of reveals for us the worldview that this rich young ruler has. And we call him a rich young ruler because we combine the data in the three Gospels that tell the story, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. We learn in them that he's rich, we learn that he's young, and we learn that he was a ruler or a leader, a person of powerful influence. And this question that he poses to Jesus early on reveals to me and reveals to all of us his presupposition. He believed that there was something he could do to eternal, inherit eternal life. You'll notice that he has a lot of respect for Jesus, it would seem. The scripture tells us that he comes to him, he bows before him on his knees, and he addresses him with the phrase, good teacher. In other words, this man looked very respectful. He looked very prominent. He's probably the kind of guy, if he was living in uh, suburban Langley or Surrey, who would be driving a Lexus. He'd own a nice single-family home. He would have probably been very successful at work in a position of leadership. He would have been very uh, successful for his age group. One of those top 100 young entrepreneurs, probably. And this chart shows us that he had this notion that if he did enough good deeds and he found the right set of good deeds to do, he would be at that proper place on the bell curve. Any of you who have been in school understand the concept of a bell curve. Teachers and professors grade papers on a bell curve. Some people are very low performers. The vast majority are at the top of the bell curve and are average, and a very small number are top performers who are the A-plus students. I think the guy had this idea that if Jesus could give him the magic, the magic paradigm, the magic potion, if you will, the magic combination of good deeds to do, and if he could do them regularly and pull them off, then he could inherit eternal life. And this chart shows us that. He wanted to reach perfection. Well, I have a question for you. Is that the question you're asking today? Is that the question I'm asking today? I know as believers in Jesus, we all espouse the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, that it is by grace you are saved, not by works. It's by faith in Christ. We all espouse that. We all know the correct theology of being raised in the church. But do we really believe it? Do we somehow behaviorally tell a different story? Do we think, I'm a good Christian if I go to church regularly and I give my tithes to the church and I volunteer with a community agency or do missions work or have a time of prayer each day? Do those things result in checkboxes in my column that make God like me just a little bit more each day? What's the magic thing? Maybe if I pray more earnestly, maybe if I give more, maybe if I... You fill in the blank. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Our world seeks an answer to this question. We hear about mental health stress during the pandemic. We hear about depression. We hear about suicide. We hear about family stress and strife. There's a brokenness. My heart will not find its rest until it finds its rest in thee, Augustine tells us. And this young man comes to Jesus with a big question. What do I got to do, Jesus? Just tell me and I'll do it. Now Jesus proceeds in verses 18 to 21 with a baffling answer. And his answer is indeed baffling. Read with me in 18 to 21. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. 
By the way, these are the last five of the top Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as given to us in Exodus chapter 20. Notice they all deal with man's relationship to man. So Jesus tells them, follow those five commandments and you'll be in good shape. Now you must be wondering to yourself, what's that about? We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him. And what did Jesus do? He looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Notice the rich man, young man here claims he has followed five of the Ten Commandments perfectly without interruption every day since he was a boy. It's quite a claim to make. Can I say that of myself? I don't think I can. I'd be hard-pressed to assume anybody could really. So he's claiming that since he was a young boy until this uh, age of being a young man, perhaps in his 20s, we don't know the age. He has never slipped up once in obeying any of the bottom five commandments. But the interesting thing is that Jesus does not take him to task or argue that his obedience to them is imperfect. He accepts the man's statement. What I find interesting is that Jesus doesn't argue with that. So basically, it's like Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to take you to task. I'm not going to say, are you sure you didn't fail to honor your father and mother just one day when you were 16 years old? You sure you didn't have an imperfect attitude? But he doesn't. He says, okay, fine. I'm going to give you that for now. But what I find interesting is that Jesus, instead of taking exception to his obedience to the five commands, here's what he does. He actually issues five more commands to the man. Exactly five. He says, okay, fair enough. You think you've done those five. Try these five on for size, and let's see how you do. Here are the five commands. Read them carefully. He says, go. It's a verb. Sell, a command. Give, a command. Come, a command. And follow. Now, what does this young man do? Does he say, no problem, no worries. I got the answer to my question. I now, you've given me the formula, you've given me the recipe, I'll do all that and then I'm going to get eternal life and I'll click my heels and I'll be on my way. No, he doesn't. The man has a very, very unique response. The man actually goes away very discouraged. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, we look at this young man's response. I want to tell you a story of my own life because an experience I went through for about two and a half years mimic exactly the experience this young man is going through. In 2015 through 2018, for about two and a half years, I faced a financial crisis in my business dealings. I went through a very difficult time that challenged whether or not all the success I had been fortunate enough to achieve financially in owning and operating my various businesses over the years might come crashing down. And I'm not going to get into the details of that because it's not relevant or appropriate for this message, but suffice it to say what I can tell you is that for two and a half years, I personally faced the real prospect that I could lose most, if not all, of everything I had ever gained and everything I had achieved. All of my investments, the commercial properties, the home, the car, my savings, I knew if things didn't go well in this process that I was facing, I could lose it all. 
I'd always said to God all my life that thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for the gifts you've given me. Thank you for your kind blessing that's allowed me to have businesses and to have the good fortune of doing well. And I recognize you've been very generous for reasons I don't understand. And I think in my heart, I'd always tried to be thankful to God. I'd always never tried not to take it for granted. I remember thanking him often over the last couple of decades in my life for what he'd given me, both materially and non-materially. And I thought I really was a good Christian that really had put to bed that I wasn't in love with riches. Well, God began to take me on a journey in 2015 that lasted for about two and a half years. And it was very difficult as I faced the possibility of losing much or all of what I'd accumulated in my businesses over the years. God spoke to me about who my God really was. And he said to me, Peter, how would you and I be if you lost it all? If you lost everything you accumulated, all of your companies, all of your investments, your home, your savings, what if it all vanished? What would you do with me? Would you then still get up in the morning and praise me? Would you still thank me for my kindness and my provision and my faithfulness? And he spoke to my heart through his Holy Spirit, and I was deeply convicted. I had a lot of tears and a lot of difficult sleepless nights during that two and a half years. And those who know me well know it was a struggle. And it really made me face, in a big way, probably for the first time in my life, what would life be like if I lost it all? You see, like the rich young ruler, I was struggling. Because I was asking myself the question, have I made a god of my wealth? Have I made an idol of my financial achievements and my possessions and my investments and my bank account? Did I worship at the altar of, at the foot of the cross and elevate Jesus as my all in all? Or was I worshiping somewhere else? At the God of my own achievements and successes and financial accumulations? You see, the rich young ruler that Jesus encountered had made a God of his wealth, and when faced with the challenge, he could not forsake that God. If his attitude to the true God had been such that he could have dispensed with his riches, then he would have treasure in heaven, whether he gave them all away or not. You see, it was all about the place those riches took in his heart. Was he willing to truly let them go? The kingdom demands man's first allegiance, and a rich man's first allegiance is often tended to be given to the acquisition or maintenance of his wealth. You see, loyalty to the kingdom cannot take second place, New Testament scholar Malinsky tells us. So today, the question becomes for us, what's the question? What place does this wealth have in my heart? What do I need to do? And that makes us come to our, last, our next point, rather, which is the bad news. The bad news, my friends, is that of bankruptcy. At the beginning of my message, I shared some headlines that we've all become familiar with. In fact, just today, as I was recording this message, I heard that Le Chateau, a large retail chain, is going bankrupt, laying off employees across the country and shuttering the doors of their retail outlets. Canada's airlines have laid off thousands of people. The cruise ship industry has been shut down, so bankruptcies are happening every day. We're almost becoming immune to them. But let's read about this in verses 22 through 26. At this time, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can see here, of course, that this camel is rather perplexed uh, that he's supposed to get through the eye of this needle, and how is he going to do that? Verse 26 tells us about that. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Now, it's frankly impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, some New Testament scholars have, over the years, tried to argue that uh, he wasn't talking about a physical uh, sewing needle. Rather, he was talking about uh, the eye of the needle being the name of some gate in Jerusalem. The uh, historical and archaeological evidence for that argument is extremely weak. Uh, some would say that he's using the word cable here instead of uh, camel because there's a slight variation in the Greek. All the best research tells us that, in fact, Jesus was using a physical camel and a physical needle. The reason? The largest mammal in uh, first century Palestine would have been a camel. So in the mind of the hearer, it would be like us saying perhaps an elephant. Uh, elephants weren't common in Palestine. They weren't in that part of the world. So the largest mammal anyone could envision, if you said to somebody randomly on the streets of Jerusalem, what's the largest animal? They would say a camel. So Jesus is saying, think of the largest animal you can possibly conjure up and think of the smallest item you might have in your house and I want you to put that big thing through this little thing and see how it works. He's drawing a word picture through hyperbole. He's trying to show them something that is actually impossible. But don't miss the nuance here. It's frankly impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We all know that. Jesus knew that. And so did his hearers. And it is impossible, in verse 26, for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Did you hear me? It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Remember, I told you at the beginning of the message, if you're listening to this message today, you're rich. So again, you can't shuffle it off to your rich neighbor or the owner of your company or your boss. This is me. This is you. Regardless of what numbers are in your bank account or my bank account or what our possessions are, we're all rich. It can't be done. A rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Why not? Because, you see, money tends to make us selfish, materialistic, independent of God and others, and distracted with ways of preserving our wealth. Wealth, most often, in many cases, may lead to an overconfidence in many of us, which becomes the antithesis of the childlike spirit of trusting dependence on the goodness and grace of God himself. I just, it had just happened in front of the disciples with this rich young man. Wealth in this situation was something Jesus had set his face against. As believers with more wealth than most of the planet we live on, we face great peril this morning. I decided not to hold back any punches. When I visit my colleagues and friends in Tanzania with my work with Under the Same Sun, I marvel at the absolute poverty they live in and the absolute joy that they go to church with. I see people leave, leaving ransackled, tiny little shacks that are falling apart with no running water and no electricity, wearing nice clean clothes because they're excited to spend the day. Yes, the day, not an hour at church. And when they praise and worship and dance, their joy is complete in a way that embarrasses me because somehow they've understood that their wealth is not in this world. Somehow their poverty has freed them to worship in a way that I long after and I admire. I like how Eugene Peterson treats verse 22 in his paraphrase of this in the message. He says, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear 
and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. The man's face clouded over. This guy wasn't just grimacing because that was a bit sad and he blew it off and moved on. This man's world came crumbling down in front of Jesus in that moment. This is what happens to us, brothers and sisters, when our idols are exposed. When Jesus does his work with us and shows us what we hold up in front of him and where we're worshiping instead of him. I think our face clouds over. Our soul clouds over with the darkness of our own idolatry. It was the last thing we expected to hear that Jesus says, Peter, I don't want some of you. I don't even want most of you. Peter, I settle for one thing only, and that is all of you. And that's why he took me on that journey those two and a half years. Because it wasn't until I faced the prospect of losing everything I had that I realized I already had everything I need if I lost it all. God's people have always been confronted with the impact of wealth on their relationship with God. Listen with me to the Lord's words to his people of Israel in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. And listen, brothers and sisters, carefully as I read. God says to them, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, you and I eat, do you have enough money to go to your groceries at Save On Foods? I think most of us probably do. I know there are those who struggle, but generally most of us are able to eat. When you build fine houses and settle down, do you have a place to live that's safe and dry? I would suspect you probably do. Again, there are those in our community struggling with homelessness, but the vast majority of us certainly have a place to live. And when your hearts, when your, your herds and your flocks grow, read your savings account with silver and gold, and they increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Rich people in the Bible had to face this. The Bible never tells us the possession of money is the root of all evil. It tells us the love of it is. So how is it that there were wealthy people in the Bible like Job, Abraham, Joseph, David, Solomon, Barnabas, Philemon, Lydia, all very wealthy people? How is it that they could be godly people and still be so wealthy? These children of God, I believe, sought to learn a way to carry and hold their wealth. They sought to hold it in the spirit of Psalm 24.1 that says, the earth is whose? The Lord's and everything in it. So brothers and sisters, please, I challenge you today to open up your banking app. And as you open your banking app, whatever the balance on the screen is, kneel and give it to Jesus. Which brings us to our last point, and that is the blessing of the bailout in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And that brings us to our slide that we had earlier. So instead of a bell curve, the way God sees my life, the way God sees your life, is that we are all unable to reach him with our good deeds. As it is written in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 12, and 20, we, we see the concept of the cross on one side, and our only ability to get access to Christ and his love and his forgiveness is if we declare our absolute bankruptcy and we depend on him for his absolute bailout. Romans 3 tells us, as it is written, there is no one righteous, 
not even one. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, but rather the law, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In the Gospel of John, another man came to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus, and he was wealthy. And he also came with the same question, how do I get eternal life? And John had a conversation, the Apostle John records a conversation that Jesus had with that rich man, where Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you want eternal life, but again, it has nothing to do with your behavior or your performance. Instead, it has to do with me. And he says, Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, unless you are born once again in a spiritual way, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so there are two quotes I'd like us to consider as we wind up today. The first is from Pastor Nicky Gumbel, who is the founder of the Alpha Program. Some of you have may have heard of him or the program. And he wisely said, whether you are wealthy or have scarcely any money, the danger is the same to love money. The temptation is there, whether it is to love money you already have or money you would dearly love to have. And another quote, your problem is not how much money you have, but instead how much your money has you. And that was from uh, me, a guy from Langley. So I ask each of us this morning to think about this, that my problem is not how much money I have, but instead how much my money has me. As the writer of the old hymn, the old rugged cross says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. As we close, the worship team will sing a song, and during the singing of that song, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and envision yourself kneeling at the foot of the cross and surrendering everything you have, every talent, every gift, every possession, every achievement, laying it all down at the foot of the cross as they sing, give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. When I'm alone, oh, when I'm alone, give me Jesus. You have, can have all this world, everything, but just give me Jesus. And when I die, and when I come to die, just give me Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we have been confronted with our tendency to try and make life work on our own. Like the rich young ruler, we come to you and confess we have believed in the fallacy that we are wealthy. And Jesus, thank you for confronting me about this and for confronting each of us that in fact, a rich man, a rich woman, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no room for them. Only those who are broken and poor in spirit. And so today we come to you, Lord, broken. And we seek the brokenness that you ask for us. And we say, I am poor, naked, wretched, blind. I need you to clothe me and to heal me. So, Lord, I declare my poverty. I tell you, Lord, I'm in a position of bankruptcy. And I seek a bailout of your amazing grace. In your loving name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to read. Um, okay. I need it. Okay. Yes, I did. Um, well, I can keep the recording going in the background, can't I?
Sorry, it just takes me a second to make sure I get the right one. I wasn't planning on a benediction, so I wasn't prepared, obviously. No, he didn't. Okay, I'm ready. For our benediction this morning, I'd like to share with you and leave with you as a blessing the lyrics to a hymn that I referenced a moment ago and received them as a benediction, an old hymn writ in the late 1700s, the old rugged cross. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and change it someday for a crown. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Blessings on you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.